All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. We are now on part four of our five-part tulip series, and I'm joined, as always, by Casey Chalk. Casey, thanks for joining me for yet another episode. I'm excited to dive into Irresistible Grace. My pleasure. Happy to be here, and yeah, let's let's do it. All right, so we talked about limited atonement last week. Uh, this topic, we actually started bleeding into it a little bit, I think, at the end of our last episode, but, but the two are are very linked, as are really all of the, especially the first four, I think, of Tulip. The T-U-L-I are really all linked together. I guess, I guess the P is as well. They're all pretty, they're all pretty inextricably linked. But maybe, maybe particularly Irresistible Grace and Limited Atonement are, are bound up together. So let's just continue our conversation from last week, and we'll talk about what Irresistible Grace means to the Protestant Reformers and some modern Protestant teachers like John Piper and R.C. Sproul. And then we'll dive into the Catholic understanding of this um, and the, the differences between the two positions. Sound good? That sounds great. All right. So I'll start with, uh, John Piper and R.C. Sproul, and then I'll let you talk us through what the reformers, original reformers, uh, formulated in the Synod of Dort and the Westminster Confession. So John Piper says that irresistible grace means that the resistance that all human beings exert against God every day is wonderfully overcome at the proper time by God's saving grace for undeserving rebels whom he chooses freely to save. And elsewhere, Piper says, the doctrine of irresistible grace does not mean that every influence of the Holy Spirit cannot be resisted. It means that the Holy Spirit, whenever he chooses, can overcome all resistance and make his influence irresistible. Now, that, I think, gets to a, a common misunderstanding that I'll talk about just after this Sproul quote, because Sproul hits the nail on the head even more, I think. Sproul says, in historic Reformation thought, the notion is this, that regeneration precedes faith. Precedes, sorry. Pre- regeneration precedes faith, comes before faith. We also believe that regeneration is monergistic. Listeners may, rem- may remember me talking about monergism in the last episode. Sproul continues, it is 100% the work of God. That's what monergistic means. God does all the work. He and he alone has the power to change the disposition of the soul and the human heart to bring us to faith. Irresistible grace does not mean that God's grace is incapable of being resisted. Indeed, we are capable of resisting God's grace and we do resist it. The idea is that God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. I prefer the term, here he goes again, redefining tulip. <laughs> I prefer the term effectual grace. Now, I mentioned that the Sproul's quote here is helpful for me, I think, because on the surface, we hear irresistible grace and we think that's ridiculous. I know plenty of people, right, in, in my Catholic parish, plenty of people who resist graces all the time. Um, the idea is not that God's grace can't be resisted. The idea is that God's efficacious grace uh, can be so ever, can be so overwhelming, has the capacity to be so overwhelming that God will bring to completion what He intends to do. Now, I mentioned this is linked to limited atonement. It's linked to unconditional election. It's linked to all the other ones, um, precisely because the idea is that Christ intends to save the elect. God intends to save the elect, and if God intends to do it, He will do it, regardless of how hard-hearted or stubborn the elect are. God's efficacious grace will overcome that hard-heartedness and that stubbornness at the proper time uh, and and wonderfully uh, impute the righteousness to that soul and save that soul. Uh, let me quote from a couple of the um, Reformation era, well, I guess sec- yeah, second and third generation of the Reformers and what they had to say about uh, this doctrine as well. So from the Synod of Dort, Article 12, all those in whose hearts God works in this marvelous way are certainly unfailingly and effectively reborn and do actually believe. Um, so I, I think the key word there would be unfailingly. Uh, what, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, the chapter 10 on effectual calling, all those whom God hath predestined unto life 
and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call, by his word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death, in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone, and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. And lastly, uh, to quote uh, the you know, great Reformed doctor himself, John Calvin, from his Institutes, Book 2, there Augustine first teaches, The human will does not obtain grace by freedom, but obtains freedom by grace. When the feeling of delight has been imparted through the same grace, the human will is formed to endure. It is strengthened with unconquerable fortitude, controlled by grace. It never will perish. But if grace forsake it, it will straightway fall. It will straightway fall. So there's a couple of things to break down there, Casey. Um, the first one that occurred to me is from your quote uh, from the Synod of Dort that, that says that God works in this marvelous way unfailingly. And I think, you know, there's a certain logic to this. I mean, I think the idea uh, ultimately is wrong, but there's a certain logic to it, right? Because if you do hold to this monergistic view that everything is simply the work of God, then if someone's not saved, then you have to say uh, that either God intended not to save that person or that God actually failed in his efforts to save that person, right? And if you say that God failed, then you're actually attacking the sovereignty of God uh, and we don't want to do that. So um, so the, the emphasis there on how God works unfailingly, I think, illuminates for us a helpful part of this doctrine, right? For the Reformed Protestant, if the grace is resistible, or let's 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 use Sproul's language. If the grace um, is not always efficacious in the way that God intends it to be, then God has somehow failed. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, the second thing is from the uh, the Calvin quote that you mentioned, and that's where Calvin says that the human does not obtain grace by freedom, but freedom by grace. In other words, it's when it's when God's grace penetrates the human soul uh, and effectually uh, enables the grace in the human soul that the human soul is actually free. Prior to that, and this now calls to mind Luther's idea of the bondage of the will, prior to that, um, you know, we, we can't be free. And so now there, there's nuance there in the understanding of what it means to be free uh, and, and how free the human will is. But again, we've, come, we've, we've had this idea before in these discussions, the Reformed Protestant paradigm does not allow for the freedom of will that the Catholic paradigm does. Um, which is not to say that the Catholic paradigm is that the, the human will is, you know, radically free and un hindered by original sin. I mean, far, far uh, to the contrary. I mean, the, the human will is indeed hindered by original sin and God's grace is necessary for every salutary act that the human will um, moves to do. But that doesn't mean that there is no role that the human will actually plays in the economy of salvation. And I think Calvin's quote here is a, another highlight uh, of that distinction between the Protestant and Catholic paradigms. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and we, I think we talked about this in one of the first podcasts as well, this idea that um, in the Catholic paradigm, it's true that uh, the, the human will is incapable of choosing the supernatural good without grace, but it can choose natural goods. Um, it's, it's, the original sin is not so damaging that, uh, that the human will can't still choose goods, objective goods on a natural level. Right, exactly. Well, let's let's dive into some scripture here, Casey, and talk about why the Protestant reformers developed this doctrine looking to scripture. Sure. So a couple from uh, Gospel of John, John 6, 4, 4. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And uh, just from a few verses prior, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. From Romans 8, 29 uh, and 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that, they, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, and lastly, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not in your own doing, it is the gift of God. So, yeah, in all of these cases, uh, Calvinists are going to interpret it in the sense that, yeah, God's grace is overcoming the resistance of, uh, yeah, the sinful human will. Well, let's let's take those kind of one at a time or maybe two at a time. The first two from John, they come from the same chapter, John 6, which is also where the Bread of Life Discourse is. Um, what's the Catholic response to the Protestant interpretation of of that claim, that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him? Sure. Um, so yeah, the two verses from John teaching that salvation and first and foremost, God's work, it's he, by his grace, who calls the unredeemed sinner and draws the sinner to himself. That's perfectly compatible with Catholic teaching. Um, moreover, God does not cast out any who humbly and repentantly come to Christ. So, uh, God does reject those who reject him. Um, so that would be sort of, yeah, the way that a, a Catholic would respond to those verses being cited as a proof text for irresistible grace. All right, sounds um, good. And how about the Romans and Ephesians one? So now we're moving to the to Pauline epistles. And um, Paul is, of course, as you well know, as a former Reformed Protestant, Paul is, uh, the Pauline epistles form uh, many of the bases for Reformed Protestant ideas about soteriology. So what's the Catholic response to those passages that you read from Romans and Ephesians? Yeah, that's right. And actually, yeah, this one from Romans 8.29, I had to memorize when I was in uh, Calvinist seminary. So um, there's, there's nothing in the salvation chain um, from Paul's letter to Romans, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Nothing in that chain that says that sinners find uh, God's gracious call irresistible, as if their will is incapable of resisting God's call. And similarly, in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Catholics affirm, yes, that faith is by grace and it is a gift of God. Um, so, yeah, there's again, there's there's nothing in the text itself that screams this uh, peculiar Calvinist interpretation. Yeah, and that Romans passage, so there's the chain that you mentioned, predestined, called, justified, glorified, and that all that all sounds good, and it, it really does, to me, at least sound like it's a definite link, right? If God predestines you, ultimately, he's going to glorify you. Um, even that's consistent with Catholic teaching, as we talked about in the Unconditional Election podcast. Um, it is consistent with uh, the faith. It is actually dogma of the faith that God does indeed predestine certain men to heaven. Um, and now there are two different ways that you can hold to that. You can, um, you know, hold to the majority of the kind of the Thomistic view, which is that God does that independent of, uh, foreseen marriage, or you can hold to the sort of like Molinist, um, Robert Bellarmine, St. Francis de Sales view, which is that God predestines, uh, on account of foreseen merits, but I, either one of those are still, I think, consistent with this, right? I mean, if, if you're predestined to heaven, uh, guess what? You're going to be glorified. You're going to, you're going to be called justified and glorified. So, um, there's no problem in the Catholic paradigm there. Um, and on, on Ephesians 2, 8, I like your point, right? It, like, this is not your undoing. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. And I think the the key part of that passage, though, for the Protestant is this is not your own doing. And this goes back to the monergist idea, right? Salvation is monergistic. Salvation is 100% the work of God in the Protestant paradigm. Um, 
I'm actually not not well versed to know if if um, you know the Catholic tradition the Catholic tradition has ever used the word monergistic, but it doesn't really matter for this purpose because Ephesians two eight is talking about how this how salvation is not of our own doing. I mean, read any part of the Catholic Catechism, read any part of the fundamentals of Catholic dogma by Ott, and you're going to see that salvation, of course, is not of our own doing. In fact, you know, even our ability to respond to salvation is only made possible by the grace of God. So there's there's absolutely no scenario in which we can say in the Catholic paradigm that grace is of our own doing. And if we do, then we're Pelagians, uh, and that's a heresy that's been uh, soundly condemned by the church. Uh, so I agree with your uh, your response to those proof texts, Casey. Yeah, right. So, I mean, God is the first actor in our salvation. Um, and I mean, I think a helpful way that I've, I've, um, I've heard it said from other Catholic theologians is this, like the salvation is in a sense, it's 100% God, it's 100% man. It's 100% man in the sense that like we are involved. We are, uh, our will is active in, the response to God's calling of grace. Um, cause yeah. And I, I think that the, the Calvinist paradigm, um, sort of re- rejects that distinction, um, and basically views it as an all, it's an all or nothing, um, game. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why there's no room in the Protestant paradigm for our conception of free will in the Catholic tradition. So this actually might Casey be a good, good time to kind of dive into a little bit more of what the tradition says on free will. Um, and then I can talk about um, what I mentioned earlier, the, uh, or I think I mentioned the last episode, the interesting debate um, post trend that still has not been resolved, but, but offers two different kind of soteriological um, understandings that are both consistent with Catholic, with Catholic tradition. But first I'll ask you about um, kind of free will in the Catholic tradition. Sure. So there's a pretty ancient pedigree for uh, this Catholic understanding of a very robust free will and its role, um, in, you know, God's first act of grace and then, but our response to it. So this is from the late second century, the letter to, uh, Diognetus. He sent him as God. He sent him as man to men. He willed to save man by persuasion, not by compulsion for compulsion is not God's way of working. <clears throat> and similarly, Irenaeus of Lyon, who's writing end of third century, uh, this is in his against the heretics. Now, all such expression demonstrate that man is in his own power with respect to faith. <clears throat> and then uh, Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Cappadocian fathers from the 4th century, for he who holds sovereignty over the universe permitted something to be subject to our own control, over which each of us alone is master. Now, this is the will, a thing that cannot be enslaved, being the power of self-determination. Yeah, and of course, you're just um, reading a few select cases. It's not like you just laid out the comprehensive case for <laughs> <laughs> for free will in the Catholic tradition. Uh, so it's a um, it's just a sampling of a lot that's out there. Um, but I I think it it bears mentioning here in this podcast, um, if only because uh, there's a perhaps pervasive belief. Um, you know, the reformers really latched on to Augustine. I think Calvin. Um, misunderstood some parts of Augustine, or, or maybe maybe he just misread, or maybe maybe deliberate, maybe not, but um, misread parts of Augustine on will. Uh, that's where he got the uh, the freedom um, gets gets what is it? Freedom by grace, not grace via freedom, or something that you, the quote that you read earlier. Um, right. So that's the that's what Calvin says as an Augustinian perspective. I think the um, the Reformed Protestant paradigm has borrowed too much of Augustine, and in some instances misread him. 
um, contra uh, over and against the whole Catholic tradition on the importance of of the the human will. And I think on this point, um, I want to read another uh, section from Ludwig Ott's Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, in which he says, and this is a, this is a dogma of faith. The human will remains free under the influence of efficacious grace, which is not irresistible. So there's the crux of the matter right there, Casey. He's he's going right for the heart of the matter, uh, going after the reformers and saying that efficacious grace is not irresistible. So he goes on to say, the Council of Trent declared against the reformers. If anyone says that man's free will moved and awakened by God does in no manner cooperate when it descends to God, who excites and calls it thereby disposing and preparing itself to receive the grace of justification. And if anyone says that it cannot dissent if it wishes, but that like some inanimate thing, it does nothing, whatever, and only remains passive, let him be anathema. So what, what this, um, that's, uh, that's the, the direct quote from Trent. What this is basically saying is that the monergistic position is wrong. That is not, it is not a, uh, it is not the case that God does all of the work and the human will remains passive, but rather God's grace is offered to the person that person's will cooperates with God's grace when it accepts, when it assents to him. And by the way, it can only assent to God because God excites and calls it. So there's the, there's the work of God, right? There's the action that we talked about in Ephesians chapter two, where salvation is the work of God. So it's still the work of God because the work of God predisposes the soul to receive his efficacious grace. And then that soul cooperates by assenting to God. And then that's, that's the way in which it becomes um, becomes a sort of a joint effort, as you mentioned already. And then Ott continues and says, Innocent the 10th condemned as heretical the proposition of Cornelius Jansen, this is Jansenism, uh, who said, In the condition of fallen nature, interior grace is never resisted. So uh, irresistible grace was also um, prominent in Jansenism, which was basically like a, it was a, it was not lockstep with the Protestant reformers, because it was, it was not a Protestant movement um, per se. It was a movement within the church that adopted a lot of the ideas of Protestantism. And so Jansen um, had these ideas like irresistible grace. Um, I think also uh, held to a, um, a limited, actually, no, definitely held to a limited atonement um, idea as well. Um, that was going on um, in the decades after Trent. So that was a, a problem that the church needed to, uh, to deal with. And then uh, Ott goes on, Holy Scripture stresses both the human factor of the freedom of the will and the divine factor of grace. Right, it's, it's not an either or; it's a both and. The numerous admonishments to penance and to good works presuppose that grace does not abrogate the freedom of the will. The freedom of the will, as against grace, is expressly affirmed in Deuteronomy thirty, uh, thirty nineteen, Ecclesi- uh, Ecclesiastes fifteen eighteen, Matthew twenty three thirty seven, which quotes, uh, which he quotes: "How often would I have gathered together thy children, and thou wouldst not." And then Acts 7, 51, you always resist the Holy Ghost. So it, clearly in scripture, there's resistance of God's grace being mentioned. Uh, and then St. Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me has not been void, but I have labored more abundantly than all day. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So that is exactly what the Catholic paradigm posits about the, the cooperation of the human will with the work of God. And then Ott goes on, St. Augustine, to whom the opponents of this doctrine appeal, never denied the freedom of the will in relation to grace. And that's what I was saying about misreading Augustine. In defense of the freedom of the will, he wrote in the year 426 or 427, the work De Gratia et Libero Arbitrio, in which he seeks to instruct and to appease those who believe that free will is denied if grace is defended, and who so defend free will that they deny grace and maintain that grace is given according to our merits. 
Justification is, this is now ought talking, justification is not only a work of grace, but at the same time, a work of the free will. He who created thee without thy help does not justify thee without thy help. And that's an Augustine sermon. When St. Augustine comments that we necessarily do that which pleases us more, he is not thinking of a superior good or evil pleasure, which precedes and determines the decision of the will as the Jansenists declare, but of a superior pleasure, which is included in the decision of the will. The freedom of the will under the influence of grace is the necessary presupposition for the meritoriousness of good works. And what he's saying there is, um, is related to our understanding of the, you know, what, what St. Paul was saying about laboring more abundantly, uh, with the grace of God. So we, we do, we do good works. And when we're doing good works, we're actively cooperating with the grace of God. But if there's no free will, then there's no actual merit to that cooperation because we don't have the, the free choice to actually do that. Um, so that's a lot, it's a lot of, uh, words from, uh, but I think it's helpful in illuminating the role of the human will, freedom of the will in the economy of salvation in the Catholic paradigm, which is just, there's not room for that in the Protestant paradigm. Yes. Um, I, I entirely agree. And, it, um, while you were talking, I was reminded of an anecdote, um, and I, I'm not going to share names cause I don't want to embarrass anybody, but a very prominent reformed theologian, um, who had a student kind of like me, uh, who was contemplating converting to Catholicism. And, uh, this theologian said to the student, something of actually referring back to that Romans eight, 29 and 30, you know, what's called the golden chain of salvation. And, uh, you know, the, the theologian posited to this, you know, a student that's thinking about becoming a Catholic. He says, are any of the links in that chain of salvation yours? Um, and so and I thought it was such an interesting polemical way of, um, of viewing salvation as just like a, a series of, of links in a chain rather than understanding, um, I, I guess what I would argue in the Catholic paradigm is, is an understand is an idea of causality where there's a, you know, primary ca- first causality, which is, you know, God's gracious act, um, towards humanity. I mean, I mean this, and this is something that is found in the Aristotelian and scholastic, uh, Thomistic philosophical tradition of the church. It has very ancient pedigree. Um, and then secondary causation, which is how humans actually have, um, a, a, a legitimate free will to be able to choose the good. And then by the grace of God, being able to choose, yeah, like the supernatural good of, you know, God's, uh, you know, gracious act of salvation. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the first cause, second cause, the cause, um, idea that's found in, um, Aquinas, and he, I think, explicitly says the first cause of salvation is God. The second cause is man. Uh, and, and the way I heard it explained in a wonderful lecture by Lawrence Feingold that I can link in this uh, in the show notes here is it's as, it's as if, um, you know, God is knocking on the door of the soul. Right. But God doesn't want to uh, to violate our um, our free choice to accept him. Um and so we have to open the door, right? So, and, and once we do, of course, you know, God's grace um, fills the whole, fills our whole soul and it is efficacious, but we have to open the door. Um, also in that lecture, and this is, uh, this is interesting. Um, I think illustrates um, the sort of uh, the breadth in the Catholic tradition of these ideas, but also highlighting a key distinction that remains between it and the reform paradigm, regardless of where you fall in this, in this Catholic intra-Catholic debate. Um, in that lecture, Feingold talks about an interesting uh, 400 years of church history that started uh, about 40 years after Trent, in which there was a big debate, largely between the Jesuits, led by a priest named Louis de Molina, 
and the Dominicans, led by a priest named uh, Domingo Banez, who actually was um, St. Teresa of Avila's uh, uh, confessor. And these two, um, this, this battle raged for, for hundreds of years, um, but even in the like immediate years of the battle, uh, the Pope decided he was going to you know, explore this issue for himself, and so he called a number of debates. Um, and uh, and so, so the, the Banyesian position was actually a lot closer to what we think of as the Protestant Reform position today, in the sense that it emphasized God's efficacious grace and that grace being operative only in the elect. Now, um, you know, the the charges uh, levied against that one is that it doesn't allow for uh, this position that God intends the salvation of all. So that's that's one problem with it. Um, but the key distinction between it and what we're talking about now with Reformed Protestantism is that the, the Bagnesian position still allowed for free will because indeed that's a dogma of the church and it had to allow for free will. So it was not a monergistic conception of efficacious grace. There was still room for the cooperation of grace in the human soul between the human will and God. Uh, but the Molinist position, so this is now largely the Jesuits, the Molinist position uh, emphasized free will, articulating that God provides sufficient grace to all um, and that sufficient grace acts in the role of operative grace. And then when the human will responds to that um, with uh, with a free choice, um, that becomes cooperative grace, et cetera. And so this debate uh, went on and on. The Pope called um, uh, called several debates to, well, more than several, I think he called like 95 debates to hear this out or explore it. And each of the debates were apparently like four to eight hours long. And then at the end of that, which obviously took a number of years, at the end of that, the Pope died and there was uh, <laughs> there was no actual decision made on this. So to this day, actually, um, both of those positions um, can be consonant with church teaching. Now, obviously, there are nuances. Um, there are things that um, there, there are there are dogmas of the church that still have to be held to. But neither of those have been condemned by the church. Um, and so it's interesting, again, illustrating the breadth of of. Uh, of ideas that can be accommodated in the, in the church um, while still emphasizing the important things that remain, right? Uh, the human will has to cooperate with God. Um, and that's a very important thing to remember in this whole economy of salvation. And it's something that the reformed Protestant paradigm, I think misses um, in part because they just don't have the terminology uh, since they've denied the freedom of the will. They don't have the terminology to allow for the cooperation of the human will with the gracious act of God. Yes. Um, yeah, and I think there's, I think there's another debate that was similar to this in the post-Reformation area. I want to think, I want to say it was on predestination, and it might have been between the Dominicans and then followers of Bonaventure, where it was a similar thing, where it went on for uh, a number of decades, might have been centuries, and eventually, I think the Pope just basically told them to cut it out. Like <laughs> there was not going to be any way to resolve this issue, um, short of a council, and that that the pontificate didn't view that as a as a you know a good option. Right. Um, yeah. And so they're basically allowed to hold, you know, multiple, uh, there's, there's, there's again, room for, um, multiple positions on predestination within the Catholic paradigm. Yeah. Well, actually it's interesting too, in this debate, the Molinist Bagnesian debate, um, it was not the Pope who convened the debates nor his successor, but I think his successor, um, who thought about picking it up again and did indeed, I think he reconvened and had some more debates and he wrote to St. Francis de Sales, of course, a great doctor of the church, wonderful saint and said basically, how should I deal with this? And Francis said, um, don't condemn either one, but don't let them condemn the other as heretics either. 
mm-hmm. um, which I think was a, a beautiful way of um, of allowing you know uh, allowing both ideas to coexist um, because neither of them neither of them of course deny any dogmas of the church uh, and that's what the the church needs to ardently defend um, but what they didn't want happening was uh, entire orders calling each other heretical. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, that, that, I think that just reflects the continued, you know, the, the beauty of the, you know, the diversity of the Catholic faith that, you know, like it's not to say that any, <laughs> any position or any doctrine is acceptable. Of yeah, course, no, I, so I almost said the diversity too. And then I was like, ah, that's, there's, there's so many connotations with that word that I don't want to, yes. but yeah, so I, I totally hear you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There yeah is, I, mean, had- I, I think people think that like the Catholic Church is, um, uh, it's a, it's a. I mean, it is a monolith, right? But I think they think that like you can't have independent thought if you're a Catholic. Um, but there are certainly many things that the Church has not formally defined, um, and they may, it, it may someday, right? But um, at this point, there are many things that it has not, and this specific debate is one of those things. Now, there are parts of it that we talked about that the Church has formally defined, uh, but you know, the the Bagnesian versus Molinist uh, argument is not one of those. Yes. Um, so uh, we can talk a little bit about, again, like the the practical application of this. Yeah, let's um, do it. I, we're running over time, so I'm sorry about that. But let's uh, let's go on to your thoughts on what the uh, what the practical theology outworkings are. Sure. Um, so I, I think firstly, um, yeah, certainly the Calvinist position can be misconstrued uh, and certainly and within, you know, the Catholic, a lot of Catholics will think that God is, yeah, just his grace is uh, irresistible to everyone. But no, yeah, as we've explained, that's not really what they teach. It's a little bit more, it's a lot more nuanced than that. Um, but all the same, it's still, it's still hard for me to understand how uh, one can hold to an idea of, of free will um, given irresistible grace. It just seems like God is steamrolling over, um, over man's, man's willpower, um, at, least, at least for those that, you know, God is, uh, that, that are his elect that he's choosing. Um, because it's categorically ruling out the idea of that that any individual is able to say no to him. Um, and I would argue, I think that flies in the face of a number of scriptural examples of people who uh, seem to be the elect, or they were at least in right standing with God, they were just, and then they fell away. Um, and, you know, we presume uh, that they, they potentially lost their salvation because of that. I, th- I think of King Solomon, um, and who turned from worship of Yahweh to pagan gods in 1 Kings uh, 11, where it says, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord of Israel. Uh, or King Saul, who at the beginning of his kingship was given the Holy Spirit and prophesied, yet later he disobeys God and even kills God's priests in uh, 1 Samuel uh, sixteen fourteen, It says, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Um, and again, in, in the New Testament, we read things like St. Paul. Uh, in Second Timothy four ten, where he says, "For Demas, he's talking about you know one of his um, uh, in one of one of his collaborators in preaching the gospel. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, uh, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia." Um, so he's basically saying, like, you know, one of the people that was with me that preached the gospel was he's abandoned me. me. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, um, there, uh, yeah. Um... I'm reminded of what you said a couple episodes ago where Calvin had that idea of like the, I forget what you call it. Evanescent grace. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah. That, I think that's certainly in play. It's, like, here. And it's, actually it's invisible, lot- right? Because you can, you can right. look like you have all the hallmarks from the outside, uh, but right. you're actually not part of the elect. <laughs> right. It's so depressing. Right. 
It, it, yes, it is depressing. And I actually should say, you know, a lot of these, some of the points I'm bringing up here, they relate a lot to perseverance of the saints, which we'll cover yeah. next week. But um, so, um, yeah, so what we see in the Calvinist paradigm is, is this tendency to try to explain away Christians who fall away, right? We, we, uh, this thing that's often said amongst Calvinists is, uh, oh, those people weren't really saved, right? And they say this with a lot of confidence. Um, but how, how can anyone judge the subjective spiritual experience of other people? Um, in the cases that I just cited from Scripture, we have ample evidence that these people in the Bible were indeed at one point righteous men of God. Look, I mean, think about King Solomon. He, multiple books in the Old Testament were written by him. Um, yeah, that's a good point. And, and yet Scripture also says, it, his, Scripture explicitly says his heart was turned from God. Now, of course, we don't know Solomon's eternal destiny. I'm not, I'm not claiming that Solomon's in hell. Um, but we'd have to presume that he would still have to repent for his idol worship. Uh, if he wanted to be restored to God's favor, you know, prior to dying. Um, and I mean, indeed, I mean, idol worship is perhaps the most condemned practice in the entire Old Testament. Um, and Solomon did it, you know, after he had done remarkable work for God. Um, so uh, this, in this tendency to, uh, to explain away Christians who fall away, that, that fosters a strange paradigmatic environment where Christians kind of like psycho- psychologize regarding the behaviors and intentions of other Christians. I think that's very unhealthy. Um, socially and psychologically. Um, it's also unfair because it presumes evil intent. Um, so basically like all the good Christian-y type stuff that a person does wasn't really legitimate because, you know, they weren't one of the elect. Um, and uh, yeah, because because we have this idea that, you know, people can't resist God if they're truly one of the chosen. Um, and they're, and, and they're, they're making these unfair judgments on people's intent without really any evidence, objectively. Um, and it also causes a certain fatalism where human will is undermined because God simply can't, he can't be resisted. Um, so how much control or responsibility do we as Christians or individuals really have? Um, you know, how much responsibility do we have for our actions? Uh, you know, if, if God can just steamroll over our wills in order to save us. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'm about to voice a thought that's not very well fleshed out at all. So bear with me here. But, you know, as, as a Reformed Protestant, I'm curious to, he- to hear your thoughts on why Reformed Protestants are often so committed to their faith. I mean, and, and I don't mean this as a criticism to either of these two groups of people, but the Reformed Protestants I know who are really committed to their faith rival um, the most devout Catholics, but only the most devout Catholics. Really, the, what, what I was going to say is rival like um, Latter-day Saints in their zeal. Um and I don't exactly know why that is, because in the reform paradigm, if there's irresistible grace, if you are one of the elect, uh, et cetera, you're going to go to heaven, right? We just, you, you outlined that proof text um, from Romans about, um, you know, the uh, called. Um, the golden chain. Yeah, elect called justified, glorified, right? Um, so you're going to be there. The, so the only thing I can think of is, well, apart from the, apart from the fact that, you know, th- these are they are Christians. Uh, so they're, you know, the grace of Christ is actually operative in their life. That's the most important thing. But, but as far as like the, you know, the, how that's externalized, um, I wonder if a lot of reformed Protestants are, are, you know, like kind of trying to convince themselves that they're among the elect. Is that, is that a fair, um, hypothesis? Oh, I think that's totally fair. I, um, I mean, and that itself has a pretty historic pedigree. I mean, there's entire Purit- books written by Puritans 
where they're talking about all the external signs that one should be looking for in order to demonstrate that one's one of the elect. Right. Yikes. So Yikes. the more that the more that you do those kinds of external signs, then the more comfort you can have um, you know, interiorly that you really are saved. And that's so um, interesting because it's I mean, that that sounds almost Pelagian, right? And 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 yet they would say like, no, it's all monergistic. All of these fruits are works of God. Um, they're not works of my own. And they're not, by the way, they're not meritorious for salvation, right? They're just external signs of those things. But it's, it's very, it's very kind of counterintuitive in a way. Um, and I would think unhelpful. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, well, yeah, I think I've talked about this in a previous pod- podcast, how it can foster a lot of like competitiveness, um, in, in like looking over your shoulder, right. At other people. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, how am I comparing to other Christians or, you know, other Calvinists? Um, yeah. So makes sense. Well, we're out of time, Casey. Uh, I'm looking forward to wrapping this up with perseverance of the saints next week. Did we miss anything today that we need our listeners to hear? Um, no, I mean, we could talk about this all day, but uh, hopefully we've given them enough of a flavor that they can uh, come away feeling confident. They have, you know, some grasp of, of, of the, the doctrine and, uh, the nuances between the Catholic and Calvinist positions. Yeah, I hope so as well. So uh, if you guys have questions for me or for Casey, feel free to reach out as always, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalcatholic.com. And we'll be back next week to wrap up the series with Perseverance of the Saints, the final letter of our TULIP acronym, even though even though R.C. Sproul wants to come up with a new acronym. We'll, we'll, we'll just roll with TULIP as it is. Perseverance of the Saints on the docket for next week. Until then, God bless you. Thank you.